Welcome to Grace Abounds. I'm Pastor Jen Shaw, and this month we're doing something a bit different. I'll be answering the questions you send in. Questions about the Christian faith, the church, the Bible, anything you may have always wondered about but never asked. Email your questions to pastor at stjohnslutheran.church. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope these words build you up in faith, hope, and love. So in fact, the two questions that we have for today were questions, I believe, that were sort of inspired by some of the things I've been saying over previous weeks here in the Ask the Pastor series, including this first question, where do truly evil people go when they die, especially if they were faithful to God? Are they ever punished for their actions in life? That is a really excellent and really challenging question. And as I've said before, I will answer to the best of my ability, always with humility, bowing before the mystery of the God whom we love and serve, uh, the mystery of our faith, and always resting in the grace of God as well. And this question is related to a question that I addressed last week, actually at the 9.30 a.m. service about the afterlife and who all will be in heaven. So I invite you to go back and to check out that series that asked the pastor from last week as well, the 9.30 service, for some further light on this particular question. So I get this question. I do. It speaks to our fundamental human sense of fairness, right? We, we want people to be punished for their bad actions. We want people to be rewarded for their good actions. We want people to pay for what they've done. And if we don't see that happen in this life, which often we don't, we do want to see it in the life to come. That's uh, that idea of When good people die, they go to heaven. And when bad people die, they go to hell. That's karma, right? What goes around comes around. You get what you sow. Your actions, we might say works, in this life determine your fate in the next. There's a standard of moral behavior. We might say the law that if you keep, if you meet in this life, you will be saved forever. And if you fail to meet this moral standard, this law in this life, you will be damned forever. And I hear this kind of thinking in Christian circles actually a lot. People say things like, well, she was a good person, so I'm sure she's in heaven. Or, Well, he'll have to answer to Peter at the pearly gates. That's karma. But, my friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news. As Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good news that if we're honest with ourselves, we know 
As Paul writes in Romans 3, 23 through 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul continues, we are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news that our salvation, our life eternal, does not depend on us. What a shaky foundation if it did. Does not depend on our ability or inability to meet a particular standard of moral behavior. Does not depend on our works, good or bad. That's what we in Lutheran circles call works righteousness. We might also call it self-righteousness, this idea that somehow we can make ourselves right with God by our good works. An understanding that Luther very much rejected because it begs that question, how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when you're good enough? How do you know when you're too bad to make it into heaven? Where, where's that distinction? And, and that is crazy making if it depends on us. But the good news is it doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is a gift, not our works. Our salvation, our life eternal depends on Jesus Christ who took our sins, all of our sins, as his own and forgives us who died on the cross and frees us from death forever, who gives us life that does not end, who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. I know this may be hard to hear, but grace isn't fair, at least not in the way we might define fairness. Grace, by definition, is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is receiving what we haven't earned. Grace doesn't extract payment for what we've done. Grace is free and freeing. As Martin Luther affirms in the freedom of a Christian, in Christ we are set free from sin and death, and we are set free for love and service in relationship with God and each other. We only ever share the grace we have received. We love because God first loved us. We do good in this life, not because we expect reward or fear punishment in the life to come, but because it's good because it's what Jesus calls us to do, because it's who we're made to be. As we live into the fullness of who God wants us to be, made us to be, created us to be, and will one day make us again, which is very good. And this leads me to the phrase at the beginning of this question. And I want to clarify that people who do evil are not being faithful to God. God in Christ Jesus very clearly stated that the greatest commandment 
the highest law, the most important thing is love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And per the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, everyone is our neighbor. Love seeks the good, health and well-being of all. Love is life-giving. Evil, sin, is the failure to love. Evil is detrimentally selfish. Evil is destructive. And so Jesus said to his followers in John 13, people will know you're my disciples by your love. 1 John 4, 8 declares, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Paul writes in Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. I do wonder if the person who asked this question in that phrasing was thinking of those heartbreaking examples of people who say they are being faithful to God, who say they believe, who say they are Christians, and then do evil things to their fellow human beings. And it seems to me, while acknowledging that we are all sinners saved by grace, that this kind of evil behavior can only happen when we relegate our Christianity to a private mental exercise that gets us into heaven when we die, that disregards the claim that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has on our life right here, right now, that shuts down the work of God, the Holy Spirit in us and through us, revealing our shared humanity, our belovedness, our common place in the grace of God. Jesus says in Luke 6, 43 through 46, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? Those are very convicting words. And I've shared in previous sermons that Dallas Willard writes about them in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, which was very, has been very meaningful in my faith journey. And here's what he says about that. Plainly in the eyes of Jesus, there is no good reason for not doing what he said to do. For he only tells us to do what is best. In one situation, he asks his students, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Just try picturing yourself standing before him and explaining why you did not do what he said was best. Now, it may be that there are cases in which this would be appropriate, and certainly we can count on his understanding. But it will not do as a general posture in a life 
of confidence in him. He has made a way for us into easy and happy obedience, really into personal fulfillment, and that way is apprenticeship to him. It is Christian discipleship. His gospel is a gospel for life and Christian discipleship. My friends, if we truly honor the name Christ E.N., to be Christ-like, then a Christian is not simply someone who calls themselves a Christian. I can call myself a tree. It doesn't make me a tree. A Christian is someone who does what Jesus Christ tells us and shows us to do who loves as God loves us, who is open to the transformative, healing, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us, who in the midst of our faults and failures truly seeks the good, health, well-being of all. And one more thought. Here's where I think our interpretation might fall short regarding some of the best-known parables of Jesus. Parables like the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 or the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Often these parables are understood, and you may have heard them understood in this way, as being about rewards and punishments in the afterlife based on faith in Christ or based on our works. But if you actually go back and read the parables, there is no discussion of what the righteous or unrighteous believed, what they thought or confessed about their faith, or even how they worshiped. The judgment in these parables is based entirely on how people treated other people, especially people in need, in this life on earth. I do not believe that these parables are actually about the afterlife. I believe these parables are about how we take care of each other in the here and now. I believe these parables are Jesus using the strongest possible language to shake us out of our destructive selfishness and into generous love. So we might think about these parables like we think about the heavenly messengers who visit Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. The point in that much-loved story was not to show Scrooge the inevitable, terrible fate that awaited him in the afterlife. As Scrooge says, why show me these things if I am past all hope? The point was to get Scrooge to change in the present, which he did the very next day on Christmas morning for his good and for the good of all the people in his life. May we do the same. And again, if that raises more questions for you, which I know it might, please send them my way. 
So the second question for this morning is, is related. I, it seems very much that uh, the afterlife is on people's minds, so I'm happy to address those questions. This is also a follow-up to last week when we talked about what does it mean in the Apostles' Creed when we say uh, he died and was buried, he descended to the dead, on the third day he rose again. So when Jesus descended to the place of the dead to collect the souls... Does that mean the place of the dead is where our souls will go to await his second coming? So my short answer to that question is no. Let me explain. So first, again, as I said last week, I bow before the mystery. I approach this with a lot of humility. Um, I am offering the best answers I can based on my understanding of faith and scripture and our tradition and experience. But there is a lot of mystery here. So that said, I offer this answer that in the context of the Apostles' Creed, the phrase, he descended to the dead, can be understood, and most scholars understand it this way, although it is, there's some mystery around that phrase, to refer to the people who died before the first coming of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus, when he came in the flesh, a baby born in the manger in Bethlehem, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven that took place some 2,000 years ago in the Holy Land. So in those few days between his death and resurrection, Jesus, who defeated death forever in his death and resurrection, descended to the place of the dead, gathered all of those folks together, and brought them to the place of the living, to heaven, to life eternal. But what about us? This question asks. What about all the folks who died after the first coming of Jesus, some 2,000 years ago in the Holy Land, and the second coming of Jesus, which hasn't happened yet? That second coming being that promised day throughout scripture in the fullness of time known only to God. Jesus actually says to his disciples, you won't know when this is going to happen, when Christ will come again and make all things new. He will bring sin and suffering and death to an end. We will experience the wholeness of the peace, shalom, goodness, fullness of God. We and the whole creation will be restored. So where do we go after we die as we await the second coming? So some of you might know that our Catholic friends might respond that we spend some time in purgatory. As I understand it, purgatory is an intermediate state between physical death and heavenly life where those who believe in Jesus go through what we might describe as the refiner's fire purged, cleansed of our sins, and and brought into that state of holiness that will be acceptable in heaven. Protestants, like us, like Lutherans, do not generally believe in purgatory. We believe that the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus has already accomplished our salvation, that Christ makes us right with God, not a purging that we experience in the afterlife, Here are the words of Martin Luther. Purgatory is contrary to the fundamental article that Christ alone and not the work of a human can help souls. 
So while Protestants don't generally believe in purgatory, I remember conversations, and maybe some of you have had these kind of conversations, especially among folks growing up, uh, where I grew up in the church in the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Church, about not purgatory, but a kind of intermediate space or like a holding space where our souls go as we await the second coming or maybe like soul sleep, like a lot of earthly time passes, but we're not aware of it. It, it was always kind of vague to me and kind of still is. And honestly, like purgatory, I don't see a lot of biblical or theological grounding for that understanding. So here's what I believe. I believe that when we die, we go right to heaven, right to the place of the living, right to life eternal. And here's why I believe this. I believe this. Because Jesus says to the thief on the cross on the day they both died, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe this because the apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to the church in Rome that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Because the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Because I feel the presence of the great cloud of witnesses, including my dad, who have gone before us into glory and who surround us even now. Because I believe that Jesus Christ is with us always. That where he is, there we will be also. That in the words of Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, for God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. Amen. Thanks for listening. Each week's episode is edited by Nick Cox. Music performed by our St. John's Worship Band. Sermons by me, Pastor Jen Shaw. Make sure to subscribe to hear each week's message. If you'd like to know more about St. John's mission to know Christ and make Christ known, to share the life-giving word and do the life-giving work of Jesus, visit our website, stjohnslutheran.church. May God bless you on this day and in all the days ahead.